Every now and then, I meet someone who's changing the world for the better by their sheer will alone. Whether they're authors, activists, or adventurous, these people are blazing a path with their deep enthusiasm and allowing the world to follow. Their passion is strong, and my passion is to tell their stories. I am Brian Platt, and this is Passion Project. Hey, what's going on, everyone? Uh, in this episode of the podcast, I speak with Carl Safina. So this is big. <laughs> if you know anything about him, you know he's a celebrated ecologist with more awards than I can mention. You know he's a New York Times bestselling author. You know he's done an incredible amount for conservation, but in particular for ocean conservation. And if you don't know anything, be prepared to learn a lot. Uh, we talk about his expansive career. We talk about positives and some negatives in conservation. And we talk about his new book, Becoming Wild, How Animal Cultures Raise Family, Create Beauty, and Achieve Peace. So normally in these podcasts, I try and make them evergreen, even though I hate that term. But I try and make it so that people can listen to it in years down the road, and it kind of remains the same. It's going to be applicable. Uh, but this is getting much harder and harder, uh, you know, with COVID-19. So we talk about that. We talk about, you know, the positives and negatives and unknowns that coronavirus is going to do to our environment. So very, very interesting stuff. Um, as always, if you like it, uh, please, you know, like, review, rate, and subscribe, all of that stuff on uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Um, that is so helpful. You have no idea. Um, and if not... Uh, go take a hike. But I really do hope you enjoy this. This is uh, was quite a joy for me to do, and I think it's packed with tons of useful information, and so is his book. Um, so without further ado, here's Carl Safina. All right. So I'm here today with Carl Safina. He's an ecologist and conservationist for over 40 years and works to inspire and engage others to devote their time and energies to conservation of wild things and wild places. His writing has won the MacArthur Genius Prize, Pew and Guggenheim Fellowships, uh, book awards from Lannan, Orion, National Academies, and the John Burroughs, James Beard, I mean, George Rabb medals, I mean, all over the place. Um, Dunn Magazine even named Carl Safina among its 100 noticeable, uh, excuse me, notable conservationists of the 20th century. In his new recent book, Becoming Wild, How Animal Cultures Raise Family, Create Beauty, and Achieve Peace, he does a deep dive into three different animals and discuss what makes them unique, but most of all, what connects us all as animals. Thank you so much for your time, Carl. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, it's a pleasure to be here. It's really fun. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, so I mean, you have such a broad span of work, touching upon animals from like tuna, salmon, sharks, sea turtles, macaws, chimpanzees. Like what common theme has your work shown you amongst animals and more broadly amongst nature in general? The well, <laughs> the most common theme is that we are living in an absolute miracle, and most of us don't really see it that way. Mm. That's really that's really the thing. The 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 it, I mean, everything about life is so incredible. Just just the idea of all the things that exist throughout the universe, 
All the elements exist throughout the universe. Light exists throughout the universe. Gravity exists throughout the universe. But at the very least, life is an extremely rare thing in the universe. It may be that we are here alone. It, it, it may be that there are other places very, very far separated from one another. But life is uh, is a very rare thing and what makes living things work is so completely mind-boggling that um i mean it 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 literally is a miracle and when i say literally a miracle the the laws of physics exist and are called laws because because they exist everywhere in the universe Gravitational attraction is the same everywhere in the universe. The mm. speed of light is the same everywhere in the universe. And entropy, the idea that disorder is constantly increasing, is one of the laws of physics. But life goes against the laws of physics in that way. Life makes things more and more orderly out of chaos it creates its own order and sets it in living motion and when you have something that breaks the laws of physics that is called a miracle that's the definition of miracle life is a miracle and that's the that's the common thing that runs through all of my work and observations and drives me because the longer I've been at this in the field, observing animals, thinking about life, writing about life, studying birds and other creatures at close range. And the older I get, the, the more completely unbelievable it all is. Hmm. You know, sometimes we first encounter something and, and we're amazed by it and then it gets familiar. But for me, this is happening in reverse the familiar is becoming mind-boggling and um, one thing I see in, in quite a lot of people as they get older they stop taking things so much for granted and and they, they live with more gratitude about about life about their own personal lives um, about a lot of things and I think that um, for me the the amount of appreciation I have for living things has just really intensified over time. And that intensification seems to actually be accelerating for me. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you can really tell that appreciation in your most recent book, Becoming Wild. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, you kind of chronicle three different themes within three different types of animals. Family within sperm whales, beauty within scarlet macaws, and peace within chimpanzees. Why did you choose those themes, and why did you choose those particular species to represent those themes? Well, really, that book is about culture and non-human animals. My last book, Beyond Words, was about what animals can think and feel. And I wanted to take a part of the lives of other animals, the cultural part, and look more deeply into that. In other words, thinking and feeling is something that is a very general thing among many, many, many animals. A smaller subset 
have culture, which I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that word. And so I, I wanted to dive more deeply into this um, sort I guess, more specialized aspect of some animals. And I chose two very cultural ones, sperm whales and chimpanzees, right. and one that was not known to be very cultural, but which I found very fascinating the first time I saw them in the wild, and I wanted to return and probe them. Um, and I found plenty when I did that. Now, by culture, what I mean is that the, the, the skills, the behaviors, and the attractions that you learn from elders, mostly you learn them from your parents or from others in your social group, they don't come purely instinctively, and they are not the things that individuals learn by trial and error and become skillful at. They're the things that you learn from others who have already learned it that have passed down these habits and these traditions and there are actually many similarities but in in other species we see things like dialects we see different skills different um, um, ways that families group together uh, just learning what there is to eat where we happen to live which is different than what there is to eat where others of, of whatever species happen to live. And so on the one hand, culture is less widespread in other species than emotion. But um, what, what kind of started to surprise me is that it's more widespread than I suspected. So many, many animals rely very heavily on learning what to do from their parents or their elders who have learned it from their parents and their elders. And some of these cultural habits have existed for many, many thousands of years in a place. So that's, that's what the book is about. And that's why I chose these three species to focus on. But as you know, from reading it, there are quite a few other species that make cameo appearances. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've studied so many. Um, and yeah, I mean, so, you know, there's a lot of generational learning that goes on with, with animals, with, with uh, in these species in particular. There's also a lot of locational learning that, that you talk about in the book. So killer whales or sperm whales or chimpanzees from this subsect of an area don't behave the exact same way as their brothers and sisters, you know, not too far away. Um, right. And the danger is when you lose that generational learning or when you lose, use that specific locational learning, that could be gone for a very long time, if not forever. Yes. And even in even in very practical terms, when people have tried to reintroduce yeah. animals back to places where that species has been wiped out in a region or in a locality, often the mortality is either unbelievably high or it simply doesn't work because there's nobody there to learn from where is the food in summer? Where do we go in winter? What are the paths that we can take? They have no idea where they are. It's called reintroduction, but it, it's not terribly different from just abandoning animals in a place and driving away. Mm. In, in um, at least one case, a thing called the thick-billed parrot, they simply couldn't learn where food was, and the reintroduction attempts just didn't work. In other cases, uh, bighorn sheep and some others they didn't work in some areas or, or the death rate was something like 80% for a number of years until the survivors eventually 
figured out what to do. Now, in, in all of those situations, young animals would simply learn it automatically from their elders. Culture answers a question that is very simple. And the question is, how do we live here in this place? And that, that sometimes is completely dependent on where the place is. What is good food here? What is poisonous food here? Where is it? Where do we go if there's a drought? Other times it's totally arbitrary. With, with um, humans, a lot of our culture is totally arbitrary. What, what language we learn is totally arbitrary. The capacity to learn a language in the human sense is completely genetic. Right. We're able to learn a language, but what language we learn is totally dependent on where we grow up and who we grow up with. There's nothing fixed about it. There's nothing better about it in one place than another. And, and that's true of a lot of human culture. We, you know, the, the ways we dress and the ways we look, they look good to us. That's why we do it. Other people, their dress and their looks, they look funny to us. But it, the reverse is obviously true. You just get used to doing things the, where, the way you do it where you're doing it. And that's really what a lot of culture is. Um, but for other species, a lot of culture is, is much more practical and much, much closer tied to actual survival. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned this could occur over a couple of thousand years, but this learning could also occur pretty quickly. I think you, I think it was either sperm whales or killer whales. You talked about sometime in the 80s or maybe early 90s when one of them, was first reported to slap their tail on the on the water oh, yeah, before that, dying. That was hump, humpback. It was way. humpback. Okay, I was wrong on both counts. Uh, but it was something that was recently discovered that they did, or at least this one in particular did. And then more, you know, there was more and more reports of more and more doing them. So they can learn it relatively quickly, I assume, providing, you know, depending on the animal. Well, it varies. It, innovation is fairly rare and that's mostly because what what has worked in a place for centuries or millennia is not necessarily something that it's smart to start fooling around with right so you know if you know what you can eat that is not poisonous it doesn't pay a lot since you already have food and you know it's okay it doesn't pay a lot to do a lot of experimenting yeah, if it's not broke. It might not turn out well. Um, so innovation is not very common. And when it does happen, it tends to spread slowly and it tends to spread only among the young. And think about this is one of the parallels with humans. Innovations tend to spread much more easily in the young. I mean, any technology thing, um, whatever it is, young people tend to take it up quickly. Sure, yeah. uh, many old people don't want to deal with it or it takes them a long time or they're really slow at it. You see the exact same thing in other, in other animals. That the whale that, that did the, the slapping to make the prey fish tighten up their schools so they were more vulnerable to a whale rushing through the school with their mouth open, that spread mostly to young whales that that whale 
was associated with it. And, and we see that with, with um, some innovations of foraging techniques in birds and some other things. It's mostly the young, it's mostly young females hmm. because males are a little more obsessed with their social status and <laughs> just contests over their social status, even at a young age. Okay, we'll get into that for sure. So, yeah. So it's mostly young females who, who will adopt the new things hmm. and the older generation who doesn't have the new innovations, they eventually they just die out and the younger ones grow up and then begin teaching their young ones as a matter of course, how to do what was a new thing becomes a tradition. Yeah. At that point, that innovation becomes a tradition and a culture. Yeah. Um, can you chat a little bit about like the three types of learning? So you mentioned in the book, there are three, there's, uh, you know, instinct, individual learning, and then these customs, tradition, and culture we've been talking about a little bit. Can you, can you, you know, provide a distinguish or, you know, distinguish between them? Instinct is something you just do that you don't have to be taught to do. Um, It's a little, a little harder with humans to know exactly what's purely instinctive, but Social smiling seems to be purely instinctive with infants. Fear, screaming, and laughing seem to be completely instinctive. And those things happen everywhere. People, you know, they don't vary culture to culture. People do that everywhere. Um, we're, we're raising some new baby chickens. And the first time I let them out outside, the, the very, very first time, they just started scratching in the dirt. Now, they're not being raised around an adult who's teaching them to do that. So somehow scratching in the dirt seems instinctive for chickens. And they Hmm. immediately started finding food, which reinforced their instinct. And they were learning that skill. They were learning that skill then on their own individually, even though they were in a group, they were, they were all kind of learning it on their own. And then they were watching each other. If somebody found something good, they'd get chased. And so they were, they were starting to learn all of that stuff. But it started instinctively. It, it became a matter of sort of trial and error learning. And, um, and then I don't know how much social learning was involved with that kind of thing. But um, the, the, the learning that is cultural is, are the things that you simply would not know how to do if you didn't see and follow an adult who was doing it or, or actually be taught by one of your parents how to do it. That has a lot to do with um, feeding techniques, migration corridors, those kinds of things. Um, There are some wolves, for instance, that can handle bison, which are gigantic, and most wolves do not know how to kill bison. So a few of them have learned that. Where have they learned that? They've learned it because they're basically the only wolves that live where in the winter, the only thing that doesn't leave is the bison. So they either have to learn how to kill them or, or starve, basically. So they learn how to kill them. But a lot of wolves have no idea how to attack something that huge. It's not a skill that they have. S- same thing with, um, with uh, orca whales. What they learn to eat, they, they learn those skills from their parents. Orca whales actually do active teaching. They often bring prey to young ones and let it go. Mm-hmm. Some dolphins do the same thing. Cheetahs do the same thing. So 
that's uh, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so when reading the book, I noticed that you, instead of using the term animals, you really kind of start off by using the terms like other than human beings or non-human individuals. Um, it seems like you're doing that in order to close the gap between us, humans, and animals, even though we are animals. So it seems like you're, right. you're doing that actively and doing that consciously. Um, what impact has de decades of reductionist science had on how we view and therefore how we treat animals? Or other than human beings, I should say. Well, in one sense, I'm a fan of reductionist science because everything we know about molecular world and chemistry and all of that stuff, I mean, reductionist science is very, very powerful. Mm. I, I think the problem with our relationship with animals has actually nothing at all to do with science. I think it's the fact that we don't know who animals are, that we have beliefs and values that are totally resistant to the science. What does the science tell us? It tells us that we are all organically related. And it tells us that humans are animals. So if I say to you, if I say to you, animals and humans are pretty similar, that kind of makes sense. But if I say to you, animals and dogs are pretty similar, you would think I made a mistake or you hadn't heard me correctly. But the fact is, dogs are animals and humans are animals. Right. So to, to say animals and dogs are pretty similar sounds weird to us, but, but it's as weird to say humans and animals are pretty similar because humans are animals. Dogs are animals. How could we be pretty similar to what we are? Right. Yeah. So it's we have this concept of us as though there are two categories, humans and the rest of everything that lives in the world. That's not scientific and it's not accurate. Everything is on a range. There are things that humans do that other animals don't do. There are things that dogs do that other animals don't do, that elephants do, that dolphins do. Uh, most most species are special in their own way. That's why they are species. There's something special and unique about them. There are a lot of things unique about humans, um, but many of the things that we think only humans can do or only humans possess, actually there there is some of that in some other animals. Hmm. So everything in the living world is on a range. It's not these categories and and it certainly is not humans and animals because humans are animals so to say it simply accurately it's humans and other animals yeah yeah and i like the way that you made that distinction within you know throughout the book um so when talking about sperm whales you mentioned that after the 9-11 attacks when global shipping was paused the whales the level of cortisol in the whales which is you know a, a chemical that arises when they're stressed or when anything is stressed the level of cortisol in the whales plummeted meaning that like routine ship trafficking was causing the whales intense stress how do you feel about like what's happening now i mean obviously we're in the middle of covid 19 how do you feel you know what are the positive stories that are going to come out of this whether it's with whales or just with the environment in general yeah, I don't know what will come out of this. One of the one of the great features of this 
COVID event is that nobody knows what's going to happen. Really. So <laughs> yeah. that's, that's a tremendous source of stress and anxiety for us humans. Um, sadly, it's true that almost everything humans do works against almost every other animal that's trying to be alive in the world. And the fact that we're all staying inside and not going anywhere right now is giving a lot of things a bit of a breather right. and it's letting the air clean up and it's lessening the water pollution and all of those kinds of things. Will we learn anything from this? There are lessons to learn. You know, we're learning that we don't have to run all over the place. It's, it's nice to be at home more consistently. We can do a lot of our work from home. We can meet a lot of the people we need to meet and talk to from home mm -hmm. and you know maybe we can take that and some of the other accommodations that would aid coexistence with us in the future i don't know if that will happen a lot of people really just want to get back to normal and you know normal was only a few weeks ago so we're learning a new way of living that is throttling down a bit and in some ways i think is more relaxing and less full of anxiety even for us people mm -hmm. but um is also being experienced that way by other animals I, i've heard from a few friends who live in the city uh, i'm near new york city i'm about 50 miles from new york city i've learned i've heard from a few friends that they're saying the bird songs are incredibly loud this spring <laughs> and the reality of it is they're not any more loud than they were last. I've always been there. You can, yeah, you can hear them now, and um, you know that's that's nice. It it would be good if we could take some of these things into the future. Mm -hmm. uh, this is not the way I would want to learn those kinds of lessons. There are a lot of other things we could have done rather than have a pandemic and have people suffering and dying sure. and losing their entire income suddenly these these are all terrible things there's there's nothing about it that makes me happy at all but there are there are some lessons in it and there are some silver linings and um although all of my friends feel a lot of anxiety i would say all of my friends also realize there are some silver linings here yeah absolutely and that's the only way you know, we can choose to look at it a number of different ways, but as long as we can understand that while there is a lot of pain and suffering going on, there are some positives that hopefully will come out of this and hopefully will, you know, it's debatable whether they'll become a new way of living, but hopefully will at least establish, you know, an appreciation for nature or an understanding or at least a new resurgence um, in certain species or in, or in uh, the overall health. Um, so in the book, you discuss how chips, you know, chimps might be violent, but they also show compassion, sympathy, empathy, and altruism. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk about instances where they and other species show this kind of these types of behavior. Well, there are there are animals that live in structured social groups. And what I mean by that is that there there are hierarchies. There is dominance or leadership. Um, which are two different things and that the individuals all know each other. So 
and there are a lot of other groups where they don't know each other. Uh, huge herds of wildebeest probably don't know other individuals. They're, they just travel in big groups. I think that would certainly be true of some of the great schooling ocean fish, salmon or herring that may travel in schools of millions of individuals. I doubt that they have any long-term relationships or know each other, but in other animals, the individuals absolutely matter and who they are with individually absolutely matters. And in, in those cases, often what you see is that if somebody's in distress, others come to their aid. They, they try to chase away or attack a predator. Sometimes they um, absolutely move toward danger. In, in the book, there are stories about sperm whales being attacked by orcas or otherwise called killer whales. Right. And because they can make sounds that can be heard for miles, other sperm whales from as far as seven miles away came to their aid to try to thwart the attack. Right. Now, if you want to stay safe, you just, you know, shelter in place, right? Those sperm whales seven miles away, they didn't have to come, but they came to the most dangerous place in the nearby ocean to try to help those whales that were under attack. Similarly with chimpanzees, um, other chimps sometimes come if, uh, if, if one that they know in their social group, in their community is being attacked by a leopard or or by strangers at the border with another community, they will rush in and often put themselves in danger and sometimes get killed defending somebody else who is under attack. Yeah, yeah, I remember in the book, you were talking about how the, um, the sperm whales united and they kind of like circled the wagon around yeah. um, you know around each other and protecting them yeah. from the killer whales, which seems like they're really, killer whales really seem like a big, Kind of a pain for the orca or for the uh, sperm whales and a lot of them. Well, in most cases, sperm whales mutual defense actually does defeat the attack of the killer whales and and prevent them from killing anybody. In one case in the book where the attack was devastating and probably killed the whole group of I think it was nine sperm whales who were very, very, very badly injured by the end of the attack and one was clearly dead at that time and, and they were eating it um, and may, and all the others were so badly injured that the scientists thought they may or probably died. Yeah. They appeared to be young adults without an elder with them who, who may have shown them how to, how to react more effectively to killer whale attack. But before that observation, Scientists seemed to, well, scientists thought that sperm whales probably were not vulnerable to killer whales because of their mutual um, self, de mutual defense. Right. Yeah, they can hold their own for sure. Uh, but I do remember that passage in the book where, yeah. where a lot of them met their demise. Um, so going back to the chimps, like you, you, and this is kind of what we we're talking about earlier, you contrast chimps with bonobos, which are pretty much like the you know identical or, or very very similar um but explaining that a bonobos are way more peaceful they're a lot more relaxed than their brethren 
chimpanzees. Um, right. And the big distinction you make in there was, hey, bonobos have a matriarch in the society, whereas chimps have a patriarch. Is that, I mean, and you kind of talk about other species that react that way or that way as well and have a much more peaceful existence. I mean, that that's a yes. really interesting thread that, um, that I want you to chat about. Yeah, so the most dominant animal in the bonobo society is always a female. And the most dominant individual in chimpanzees is always male. And mm -hmm. in, in humans, it's a bit of a mix, but we're clearly more male dominated. And males tend to fight for dominance and they tend to assert dominance violently. Um, and if they're bigger and they're stronger and, they're, and their main game is violence, then they get to be the most dominant one. But there are quite a few other species where the most dominant individual is always female. And um, they involve things like elephants, killer whales, sperm whales, um, lemurs, um, wolves. To a certain extent, the, the dominance is really just equal among the male and the female. Hmm in the wolf family, but the female tends to make more of the decisions about when we're going to move, when we're going to rest, when we're going to hunt. Hmm. Those, um, those species, they get their dominance because as elder individuals, they just get respect for the knowledge that they have and the example that they set based on the knowledge that they have. They don't fight about it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the ones that, the ones that fight and the ones that can turn violent within their own community are notably chimpanzees and human beings. Right. Yeah. And chimps are, you know, we, we share 98% of our genetic code with chimpanzees. Right. And we were talking about this before the call, but I just got back from, I mean, just, but a few months ago in, in November, got back from Uganda with my and a honeymoon with my wife. And when we first started approaching the chimps, you could hear them before you could see them and you could hear them from a long ways. And they were super loud. My heart was pounding. I can't tell if, if it was an aggressive tone or not, but it felt aggressive. It felt intense. And the entire time I was, you know, I was concerned. I felt like you know, we saw the gorillas. We've we've been to Africa a few times. That was one of the few times I felt, you know, potentially in jeopardy uh, because of you know stories I had heard and readings I had right. read before. Well, the chances of a chimpanzee attacking a person are are almost zero. But right, right. They uh, there's no comparison with the level of violence and hostile interaction between gorillas, which, which have almost none yeah, absolutely. and chimpanzees for which it's a way of life. <laughs> um, but there is one thing about chimps, all the screaming and all the intensity that they do may not seem as intense to them. In other words, mm. you know, we may be misinterpreting how upset they are by the level of screaming. And it may be that to them, you know, it's just they're just normally loud and they're used to it. And it's not as big a deal as it sounds. But right. but it is without a doubt the the lead in the, the, the most dominant individual within a chimp group is a male. And the male got there by fighting his way to dominance. Yeah. And that, that's that's 
almost always the case. That being said, it doesn't have to be that way because there's an interesting case where a group of baboons who are usually the same way. There's, there's males fighting for dominance. Um, this one group that was very, very closely studied, all of the, all of the uh, dominant adult males died off in an epidemic. And the younger ones that grew up just didn't do it that way. Right, yeah. And then years later, when they aged out, the n new ones that had come in under that more peaceful regime were more peaceful. They had learned a new, better, more peaceful way of being that did not involve so much violence or fighting for dominance all the time. And there are chimpanzees in West Africa who are about as mellow with each other as are bonobos. They're, they're, um, and interestingly, the scientist I was with in Uganda, where I wrote about um, all these struggles for dominance and all the, all the constant screaming and the displaying and everything, she recently went to the other population on the, uh, across the continent in West Africa and uh, even though she's known about this for a long time and she studies chimps for a living, it was the first time she had seen it. And she, she kind of couldn't believe how mellow those chimpanzees were. So why are they that way? Nobody knows, but the, but the young ones grow up that way because the elders are that way and that's their culture. Right. Yeah. There you go. Bringing it all back to culture. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, yeah, it definitely is interesting. Like you drew the parallel between an Italian family or something that, that at yeah. one point, right. you know, they, they could be raising their voice, but then five minutes later, everyone's passing bread at the table. So it is hard right. for us to go and interpret what they're talking about exactly, right. especially me. I have no idea, but right. um, it, it's it's hard to know how much stress they feel when there's so much screaming. Right. I, I, you do see a lot of times you do see females take their babies and run away. They, they don't want to be there. So they do feel some stress and, and there is some risk of getting caught up in it. But whether they feel it as intensely as it sounds to us is unclear. But, um, but they are very emotional creatures and they do fight. So yeah. some of that, you know, some of that is not fooling. I'm sure I was personifying a lot of it, but, uh, but yeah, it made for an interesting trip for sure. Um, so you tremendously helped popularize, popularize the term overfishing. Um, what was the discovery or set of discoveries that caused you to, you know, really essentially coin the term? And how have we trended since that term was invented, um, since you started I, using it? I don't, I didn't coin that term. That okay. term has been around for a while. I, uh, it may be that a lot more people know about it if, if they've read something a lot of things i've written about it because i've written a lot about it right um the why did i write about it and why did i get involved in trying to combat overfishing overfishing is when you fish so hard that the fish cannot replace themselves by breeding the population goes down and down and gets eventually or or fairly rapidly depleted the, the, the fish become scarce People start going out of business if they're involved in commercial fishing. If they're involved in recreational fishing, the fishing just gets terrible. 
I saw and experienced all of that because I used to really do a lot of fishing and I, I still go fishing. I, I still enjoy it. It's still a big part of where my own diet comes from. Mm-hmm. And I've seen both sides of it. I've seen the rapid depletion of fish that were very abundant. And I've also seen, as a result of some of the things that we fought for and won, laws and policy changes that resulted in very depleted fish recovering. Hmm. In a couple of cases, recovering to numbers that I never would have imagined ever existed before, which you know, gives you some idea about how little idea we have about the abundance that existed before the industrial age. What would be an example of that, of something that's recovered so much that it surprised you? An example of that is a fish called menhaden. That's a Native American term for a herring-like fish that lives on the East Coast. And when I was a kid, I, I once saw a school of them that was about a mile long, I estimated, which to me was mind-bogglingly huge. Most, <laughs> yeah. of, most, of them are, most of them are like, you know, a quarter acre or something like that. And when I say I see them, they have a habit of being at the surface where you can see the whole school swimming around and they pack very, very densely. And I used to fish around them a lot because many things that many other kinds of fish eat them. So if you go to where they are, you can catch the other kinds of fish. So I saw them get further depleted. I had heard that they were once very abundant. I knew that they had been very depleted before I was on the scene. And you know, yet when I was a kid, as I said, I saw a school that was about a mile long And then I saw them get really pretty scarce as a result of uh, totally unlimited overfishing that was just driving them down and down and down and down. Now, I happen to have a beach house in a place where you can see the remains of three former small-scale factories where these fish were processed. And of course... They all went out of business because they put themselves out of business by catching too much. In that area, I didn't see any of these fish from the mid-1980s until about 2010 or so. In 2012, I think it was, some limits were put on the catch. And... In the last few years, the recovery rate of those fish has been so mind-boggling that last year, uh, and they, they've been tending to huddle up against the beaches because the humpback whales have found that in the summertime, you can, you can basically chase these things into shallow water right outside the surf zone of Long Island and just crash through them and spend the whole summer eating that way. So last summer, somebody told me that they had seen about a dozen whales at one particular beach. That, that's a lot of whales to see from shore on Long Island. So the next morning, early, 
I got in my car. I was going to go down to that beach, but I decided to check a few other beaches on the way because that beach was about 20 miles from where I live. But there's another beach only about two miles from where I live. So I checked the one that was two miles. I checked the one that was five miles. I checked the one that was 10. And I checked the one that was 20. So that's about 15 miles. At every place I checked, those Menhaden schools were there. And I saw either humpback whales or dolphins right from shore just in a few minutes. So then the day after that, I took my boat. Now, now I had made those stops. I was stopping several miles apart, even though it was a span of about 15 miles. I don't know what was in those miles I didn't stop. But I took my boat around the eastern point of Long Island and started driving west on the south shore of Long Island. I picked up those schools within about the first two miles after rounding the point. I drove for 20 miles with, with those schools being basically not broken, one continuous 20 mile long school with a humpback whale about every mile and a half. And, and I stopped and turned around where I had started in my car. In other words, I knew that those schools went another 15 miles from, from the 20 miles I had gone. So there was at least a school of fish there that was around 30 miles long. I, I never would have imagined that they could do that or that they could exist in those numbers. It was completely mind-boggling, and it is changing the entire ocean because the whales are right, right along the beach. Dolphins that we never, basically never saw before, they're a common sight now. I have, I have neighbors there that are, they're 90 years old now and about 10 years old. Um, we saw dolphins in the bay and they said they had never seen dolphins in the bay, but now those dolphins are in the bay every single year. So the, the recovery is rearranging the whole ocean and it's, 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 it's food for lots of other fish and whales and dolphins. So yeah. it's really fantastic. Yeah. It's definitely incredible news and knowing, you know, there's a lot of negative you were saying most news in the environmental realm is negative right now, it feels. So a lot of anything we do seems to have an impact, a negative impact on the environment. But it does seem like America in general is pretty good at putting some restrictions on fishing. And, you know, that obviously impacts on people, some fishermen who rely on the oceans themselves. But because of well, it, those, we're also seeing a resurgence. Those fishermen were mostly putting themselves out of business by the early 1990s and the restrictions that have allowed the fish to recover have allowed fishing to recover and become profitable again in many cases yeah. so um it wasn't it wasn't the it, it wasn't for nothing that restrictions on fishing were required right it, it was because there was going to be almost nothing left and people were going out of business right and left. So that's why those restrictions were necessary and they've worked and the U S is the leader and the U S has more recovering fish populations than any other country in the world. Yeah. Which is so promising to hear. Uh, yeah. So you've done a lot of work, uh, you know, with conserving sharks and tuna in your mind, what do we do for sharks and for tuna? 
that was done for you know the whale movement, the save the whale movement in the 70s and 80s. Like, how can we value sharks for their ecosystem services rather than just for harvestable meat, and sometimes as a tourist attraction? Well, that's hard because I think it I think it bumps up against the limits of the human mind to feel yep. empathy and compassion and to see that all all living things make our world alive and beautiful all all living things have an equal claim to existence as we do they they are here we are here we all belong equally to the planet and that um these other creatures are also fantastic and fascinating in their own ways so the problem is that we mostly relate to human beings and that means that we best relate to those things that are more like us that's why we're we're um we're more amenable to mammals because we are mammals and the less like us they seem the harder it is for a lot of people to empathize with them i think though i mean a few years ago people thought that killer whales would take any opportunity to swallow a person the, the reality is they never do that. No, no person has ever been hurt by a free-living killer whale. And uh, the same was true of sperm whales. People thought, oh my God, you know, that this is the largest animal with teeth. They could easily just gulp a person down and they would do that if they ever got the chance. But they're very shy. And often, I mean, it's only been about 25 years that anybody got in the water with a mask and snorkel and sperm whales, mostly they leave because they're shy. Sometimes they approach if they're curious. What they, what they never do is show any aggression at all. It, it doesn't occur to them to be aggressive to people. They have no reason to be aggressive to people. Um, people thought that sharks were always dangerous. Sharks can be dangerous. Automobiles can be dangerous, but um, there are many times when sharks are not dangerous and automobiles are also not dangerous. I've been in the water many times with sharks and um, mostly they ignore you. Sometimes they're a little curious. Um, once that I can remember, they were a little too curious and I didn't feel too comfortable. And, and those sharks were small, actually, hmm. the, the ones that seemed a little too curious. Um, and they, they were swimming very fast, partly because they were small. It may be that they were not really any more aggressive than any of the other large sharks that I've been around, but just sort of swim along. They, they look at you and they continue doing what they're doing. So um, well, I've been unbelievably lucky to have a lot of these experiences firsthand. Um, I've, I've experienced a range of animals that I actually don't know of other people who've experienced such a range. Right. I, I mean, I've been swimming with giant tuna that weighed a thousand pounds that were zooming all around me. Wow. Uh, I've visited albatross colonies. I've been with elephants and chimpanzees. That's an extraordinary lucky life to to experience all of those things. 
And I think it's part of the reason why I see things as I do, because I've seen all of those things firsthand. And that's given me a, a really incredible perspective on life and the world. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the big thing is that you've, you know, you've gone all over the place and seen all different types of, of, uh, species. And it's, it is truly gotta be really incredible to be able to say that. Yeah. And I feel, you know, I feel like, um, what my role is, is to share those experiences. Um, that's, that's really what I, that's why I write. I write to share those experiences. Yeah. And, and that's incredibly helpful for setting records straight. Like you were mentioning mm -hmm. in the book, like there's a lot of people think sperm whales are inherently evil or they're inherently, you know, I mean, obviously Moby Dick comes to mind or the, um, you well, know, Moby Dick, first of all, <laughs> yeah, that, so that's a great example. Yeah. It's a great Mo chapter in the book. Moby Dick is a fictional whale. <laughs> first of all, you know, just like Jaws is a fictional white shark. Now, right. white sharks have quite a few times attacked human beings. Sperm whales have never attacked a human being, with the exception of human beings who had harpooned them. Who had attacked them first, yeah. And they were just trying not to get killed mm -hmm. because they were being harpooned by people. Right. So that's called self-defense. That's not called aggression. In the case of the whale that uh, the, the author of Moby Dick, Herman Melville, um, came up with his climax because a whale did sink a ship called the Essex. And he read that story. A couple of other sperm whales later also sank ships. In every single case, the, their group the, the females they were with were under attack by people in small boats from that ship who were killing them. Right. That's not aggression. That's self-defense. Sperm whales have never shown aggression to a human being. Yeah, exactly. So that was that was really enlightening, too, because I was I'll admit I was of that previous category of like, man, I thought these guys were very aggressive. But having read that chapter and those segments within the chapter, it is really interesting to know they're not any more aggressive than anything else. They're just defending themselves or just trying to get away from this immediate danger. Right. Um, so in terms of sharks, it, you know, it, it's probably pretty difficult to determine their worth in the ecosystem in dollars because of that hurdle we have to jump up. well i i don't think their worth in an ecosystem is measurable in dollars hmm. um, i mean and people have done that you can do it and people have done that but um to me that has nothing at all to do with their with their value it, there are a lot of things that are worth essentially no dollars um they're all highly valuable they they're there first of all and there's no reason to question for us in, in our little, tiny, little brief lives to think that we can question the existence of something that's been on Earth for millions of years. Sure. And we can decide whether it's worth anything is, is an absurd and actually psychotic notion. <laughs> yeah. Um, not only because of our standing in the world, but because we are then appointing ourselves to make the decision for every other human generation that will follow who maybe don't want the world cleaned out of living things who knows 
the, the human value of things is often discovered after most of them are destroyed or or sometimes it's discovered why, while they're still abundant. I mean, the, humanity is not the measure of everything on Earth. We often think it is, but that's not true. It's just not the case. Yeah, agree. It is unfortunate that a lot of people in countries do think in terms of dollars, but I mean, it's it, one of those it, things that it's, you know, we should be able to move beyond that, I agree with you. For most of human history, the question of the value of other living things would have made no sense. Hmm. Every living thing was of complete value. It, right. it was the world. It, to, to most human societies for most of human history, asking whether this species or that species was valuable would be like asking is is air valuable is the world valuable yeah. it's just it would be a nonsense kind of question of of course it's it's there it's it's the world the world is valuable that that was the way that people saw it until i mean if you want to talk about reductionist hmm. yeah the the monetary system is the reductionist thing that is catastrophically destructive because in addition to saying, I'll trade you these tokens that we call money for, for what you have that I need, which is fine, it, it has gone to this bizarre extreme of saying, well, if we're not making money off of this, get rid of it. Right. And that, that is a, I, I mean, it's, you know, there are people called sociopaths. I, I don't know what the other, you know, uh, biopathology um, might be the psychological term for people who, who don't understand that everything that lives has tremendous value. Whether you're making money off of it is beside the point. Yeah. So I wonder if people who make or supplement their income off of sharks or shark fitting, is there an argument on the other side? of just, hey, these species as a whole can provide some value, whether it's monetary or not. Like people who Well, can... in those cases, obviously, if you're relying on something, you shouldn't destroy it, right? I mean, right. why would you do something like that? You, I, most businesses are obsessed with growth. Why, why would you have a business that's obsessed with destroying what it relies on? That's, that's also a crazy thing. Yeah. That happens a lot with our relationship with living things mm -hmm. we we often destroy the thing we rely on and uh, that's not local people using it locally don't do that yeah but what happens is when anybody whether they're local or especially if they're not local and the market is far away and is impossible to satisfy that's when you get a a catastrophic collision of the ability to take and the inability to understand the word enough. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of different cases come to mind, um, you know, with trade to China or, or what have you. Yeah. Um, so in your opinion, speaking of that, how strongly is COVID-19 linked to wild animal markets? And what, what recommendations do you have to push conservation efforts forward, such as closing the wet markets, 
while recognizing that people depend on natural resources to survive and while also being culturally sensitive to their, you know, to their culture. Well, I, I'm not culturally sensitive to any, any culture, whether it's my own or anybody else's, that destroys the living world hmm, yeah. and diminishes it. I, I, this is totally different than using. Using is using, but using it up is not good. And I'm, I'm against that in my own culture. I have fought a lot against overfishing. Um, I, I fought a lot against things that deplete and diminish what's alive and what people depend on. I go fishing. I use fish. They are my food. I don't want to use them up because I want them to be there. That's, that's a very important distinction. These wildlife markets are emptying the world of the wildlife that they are using. They're, they have no sense of what's enough. They have no sense of what they're doing in the far off places that are feeding into it. And the, to the extent that they've started farming those wild animals, yeah. the amount of abuse and cruelty and total misery is beyond belief. But that's in a way beside the point of the question you asked, which is about this current pandemic called COVID-19. That did come from these wildlife markets. And one of the problems with these wildlife markets, you're talking about what people, what people use for their way of living. Well, these markets are now killing millions of people around the world because they are functioning as test tubes for viruses, viruses that would never be in contact with people, viruses that would never be in contact among species that would never be in contact in the wild, like bats and civets would not be jammed up against each other in the wild. Day after day, year after year, in these tight, filthy, miserable conditions, these viruses have innumerable chances to make little evolutionary changes that allow them to jump into human beings. Hmm a whole series of epidemics, some of them much more deadly than COVID-19, have occurred in the last 25 or 30 years. They're accelerating because there are more and more people eating more and more of these animals, jamming them up together more and more consistently. We have COVID, we had mares, which, which people got from camels, that was that had a very high rate of lethality. Luckily, it did not go pandemic. We had SARS, which also came from domestic animals. This is not all from wild animals. A lot of it is from the intensive factory farming Absolutely that we not. do. Um, bird flu comes from poultry and duck farms. Doesn't come from wild animals. Swine flu is from pigs. It doesn't come from wild animals. You're not supposed to have millions and millions of pigs jammed up against each other yep. constantly in, and, and shipped everywhere in the world. This is just a test tube for viruses to keep testing and testing to, to see essentially 
whether they can exist and infect a new species that that is great for them because there's seven billion potential prey items called people around the world. Ebola came from primates and so did AIDS. AIDS came from people eating chimpanzees and monkeys. There's a, a there's a virus that doesn't cause any illness or any symptoms in these species because they've been living with it for many thousands, maybe millions of years. It's called simian immunodeficiency virus, but it does not cause any immunodeficiency in other simians, only human beings, because we didn't have any exposure to it until very recently. People eat these creatures that we're not supposed to eat. They're not part of the normal food chain. We're not supposed to be in this kind of blood contact with them, basically exchanging bodily fluids with them. And this virus, this, this SIV, became H, human IV, that caused AIDS, which kills everybody who gets it, except that now there are treatments that took decades to come up with. AIDS, yep. For decades, AIDS was a, a total death sentence. Now, luckily, these other, oh, there's another one, Marburg, that also came from monkeys. Some of these things killed a tremendous fraction of the people that were infected, talking about way over 50%. COVID is killing 3% or so. If if we had, a, and and we may get, because these things are, these new diseases from these animals are accelerating in their appearance. If we get a new disease that is as contagious as COVID and as deadly as Ebola, well, it's pretty much game over. It's going to be the Black Plague again, which killed about one third of the people in Europe. But now it will be global right. and it will kill two or three billion people and and disrupt everything about how to live as a human being. Yeah, uh, yeah, I agree with you. So the, the, this, these ways of abusing wildlife are going to kill us and these ways of abusing farm animals are also going to kill us. They have they have sparked these epidemics that that until now have not been pandemic. This is the first pandemic coming out of all this. Factory farm well first of all eating animals has a, a lot of there are a lot of negative effects. The cruelty issue completely aside, there are a lot of negative effects of farming animals and these the raising them in concentration camps needs to be totally redone. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, small farms, disaggregated farms, local use of animals and of animal products. That's one thing we're doing it all wrong now. And it is coming back to kill us. I, I think you're right. I think that well, I know you're right. And I feel that. The way that the more I look into factory farming, the I mean, it's a tinderbox waiting to explode and it has in the past. But to your point, not as not as dire of an impact as it really could and really should. Just, you know, it's hard to put the cruelty aside, but even putting that aside, it is horrifying the way they're jammed in there, the way that, you know, that they're treated. And we expect we're talking about cortisol earlier. We expect that not to increase, but we also expect these 
diseases not to run rampant within them. So, um, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more about that. Um, so, you know, talking about that, you've got one of my favorite passages I've ever read is in the, is in this book. Um, and it goes like this, a thing is right when it adds or aids what is beautiful. Parks and refuges necessarily, or excuse me, necessarily now, but not sufficient are merely the flip side of widespread demolition. They're like preserving Mona Lisa's eyes while pulping the rest of Da Vinci's masterpiece for its fibers, then congratulating ourselves for our forethought or foresight, excuse me. Um, incredible. I, I had to read that a few times just to really grasp how powerful it was. Using your analogy, what can we do to try and reclaim Mona Lisa if we can at all? I mean, you know, there are these little pockets of nature and they keep growing smaller and smaller yeah. every day. But like, what are some positive environmental stories we can we can leave off with? We can talk right. About? Well, see what you the way you just stated that is something that we need to re-understand. There, there are not pockets of nature. Nature is the whole world. And what we need to understand is that we can't conserve pockets right. that will fail. Nature is not something that exists in a place you go to, to get nature. Like you go to the supermarket to get food because that's where food is. Even though we tend to think many of us that you go to a national park to get nature, but nature is everywhere. It's the whole world. And what we need to do is come to a better coexistence with the living world everywhere so that it can live where we live. That's the only thing that can possibly work. So it's not just a few parks here and there or save a few things here and there. Right. It's, it's widespread, gigantic amounts of coexistence across landscapes throughout oceans and uh and through and through the atmosphere wherever living things can live we need to let them live and we need to coexist with them i don't mean in every square inch i don't mean in our house i don't mean everything needs to live in every city but i do mean that relying on parks or refuges will fail. They, they cannot be big enough to work permanently. What will work permanently is for us to simply make room for the rest of life on earth. The, the way that we did for most of human history until, I don't know, just, uh, you know, a, a century or two. Right. How do you feel? Are you positive about you know the world being able to do that, or or do you feel differently now that you have all this exposure with different cultures and different species? Well, the, the trends are are both. There are some things that are going in a good direction, and there are some things that are going in a terrible direction. There there's a clash of values. Um, the good the best part is we we know everything that we would need to do. It's not like we're losing things and we have no idea why or no idea how to turn it around. You got the knowledge. But, uh, you know, as much as we've tried to ensure the safety and health of the natural and human environment in this country, for instance, pesticide companies, pharmaceutical companies, agribusinesses, 
oil companies have all worked in in the exact opposite direction. They they're on what is basically a a, a life killing spree, and uh, a lot of people would like to see things done in a much better way, and we know what those better ways would be. So, how it will end, I I don't know. Yeah, agreed. Um, well, Carl, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Um, you know, before we go, where can someone pick up a copy of Becoming Wild? How animal cultures raise families, create beauty, and achieve peace. Well, as they say, anywhere books are sold. So, um, <laughs> any bookstore either has it or can get it and uh any online bookseller can well a lot of a lot of them have it in stock right now so it's, it's very easy to get yeah. awesome perfect and like i was saying before this uh interview telling you you know i am not uh, someone who can read on my computer but you guys sent me a pdf you also sent me a book but i finished it all on the pdf just reading on my computer it is such an incredible read. I'm going to reread it. I have the entire thing highlighted. I, I took notes on the whole thing. So, um, you know, a lot to learn, a lot of takeaways. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for the work you're doing. And uh, thank yeah, you. Absolutely. I really appreciate this. Thank you so much. Me Carl. too. <laughs> me too. Thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely. Well, you take care. Thanks for joining. If you liked that episode, feel free to rate, view, and subscribe. That actually really helps. If you haven't seen it yet, take a look at the accompanying blog. Don't forget your boots.com, where you can read more and see photos for all the interviews. Until next time. Take care.